Well, good morning, and uh, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. Some of you are aware, today we wrap up our series in Ephesians called Blueprint. Over the past two months or so, we've been looking at this ancient letter to the church in Ephesus written by the Apostle Paul, in which Paul describes for the church God's design, God's blueprint for their life. I hope that the past two months or so in this letter has been helpful to you. I hope you've enjoyed it. And what you may not know about this church in Ephesus, though, is there's actually a second letter in Scripture recorded to the church in Ephesus. It's not called Second Ephesians or something the way, uh, you know, Second Corinthians is labeled, but there's a second letter that's written to this same community in Ephesus about a generation after the Apostle Paul wrote his letter. And that's the letter that we're going to look at today as we conclude our study in Ephesians. It's found in the book of Revelation. Now, if you are a uh, someone who is familiar a little bit with the Bible and with church, you hear the, the word revelation, you start to freak out a little bit, okay? Because revelation is the last book in our Bible, and in it contains a lot of end times language, apocalyptic language, language about uh, God's final judgment and the life to come. There's a lot of imagery and symbolism and allegory and prophecy. It's a complicated book. It's a book we don't talk about a lot because of that. But before some of that language begins in Revelation, there, there's this really sweet section in chapter 2 and 3 that contains seven letters to these ancient churches in Asia. And the first letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus, the same congregation that Paul wrote to a generation earlier. The letter is from Jesus Christ himself, dictated to the Apostle John, who's been exiled on an island. And he has this vision of Jesus Christ coming down, and Jesus says to John, go get something to write with. I want you to write down these seven letters. I want you to deliver them to these ancient churches. And so today, as we conclude our study in Ephesians, we look at this final letter recorded in Revelation. Now, Ray took like two months to get through Ephesians. We're going to do this letter in a week, okay? So I don't know what Ray's been doing. We're going to cover the whole letter in one shot, it's a little shorter than his letter, so, you know, to his defense. But anyways, so this is how the letter starts. After Jesus introduces himself to the church, he says this in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered. And you have endured hardship for my name, and you have not grown weary. Each of these seven letters follow some of the same uh, format and template, but each of these seven letters, a part of their, their, their body of the letter is that Jesus spent some, time, spent some time encouraging them, calling out things in their congregation that are strengths. And so what he calls out in the church in Ephesus is that they have, they have been faithful to their call, they have not abandoned Jesus, and they have protected truth. And you might know this from our study in Ephesians, but the ancient city of Ephesus was uh, a main city in the ancient world, and in it were uh, a lot of different religious practices. There were a lot of ancient teachers and philosophers, uh, people that had a lot of different spiritual and religious ideas and practices. And so this group that had come together in the church of Ephesus, they had decided, they had made the decision that they were going to follow Jesus, and they believed what Jesus said was true. And so this adds to the list of all the different religions and all the different practices and all the different sets of truths, add to that list the church in Ephesus. And what had happened over time is people were trying to infiltrate their church, and they were trying to influence their doctrine. They were trying to influence their truth. They were trying to influence what they believed about Jesus. 
And Jesus said, to your credit, you have not allowed these people to come into your church and change the bottom line. In fact, in Acts 20, as Paul is setting up the church in Ephesus, this is the beginning of the church, he has planted the church, he's been there for about three years, and he is about to leave to go do ministry somewhere else. And he warns them that this is going to happen. He says, there are going to be these people, and he calls them wolves. There are these, there's wolves. They're going to try and come in, and they're going to try and tamper with your congregation. They're going to try and tell you things that aren't true. They're going to try and change what you believe about Jesus. Don't let them. And so a generation removed from this advice, they seem to have followed Paul's instructions, and they have not allowed false teaching to infiltrate their church. And Jesus says, additionally, you have persevered, you have endured for my name. It's interesting that he doesn't just say, you've come on some hard times and you haven't given up and you haven't abandoned me, but he specifically says, the hard times that you've endured are related to the fact that you're following me. Because you are Christ followers now, you have been persecuted and you have not allowed that persecution to harden you to the point of turning away from me. You have not abandoned your faith. This is an incredible encouragement from Jesus himself. In fact, what's really interesting is kind of like a little bit even of wordplay on Jesus' part because the verb in two for tolerate and the verb in three for endured hardship are actually the same word, which is really fascinating. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you were not, you couldn't even, you couldn't even tolerate, you couldn't endure, you couldn't bear people trying to change the truth of the gospel. But when it came to the hardship that you're going to have associated with my name, you, you were willing to endure. You were willing to tolerate. You were willing to, to be patient with. So this church is an incredible church. They have some incredible things going for them. But then there is the occasion for which Jesus writes, because he didn't just write these letters to encourage the church. He also, in these seven instances, had something of a rebuke for them. There was something that he also wanted to call out. And so what was that? In this congregation. It starts in verse 4. He says this. It's very simple, very pointed. It says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You used to love me, and now you don't. What happened? You know, I think what's really interesting, before we even go on this morning, it seems like what happened in their congregation is they traded their zeal for Jesus and for a zeal for orthodoxy. It seems like they had fallen in love with a set of truths before they had fallen in love with the person of Jesus. And I wonder if there's something for us, even this morning, five minutes in, if there's something for us, three weeks out from a political election, at a time when our social media accounts seem just to be a battleground for our favorite theologies and ideologies and political systems. I wonder if there's a warning, even this morning, right now, if there's a warning to not trade our love of Jesus for our love of a set of truths, of doctrines, of politics, of orthodoxy. That's just for free. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. But I think that there, I think that there might be. So what does Jesus say? He says, you've lost your first love. How could that have happened to this church? I think the more you understand about this church, the more startling that, that rebuke is. Because this church, established in Acts 18 through 20, okay, you can read the history of how this church started. It's an incredible history. They have a storied history of the way that they formed together and the way that they, they interacted with their community and the way that they bonded together. It's an incredible history. We also see through Scripture that they have a lineage of incredible pastors and leaders 
that people like Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Paul himself was there for three years, and then Paul's apprentice, Timothy, and then later the Apostle John, who was receiving this vision, spent time pastoring this congregation. So they have this incredible history. They have these incredible leaders. They have this incredible dedication to truth where they're not going to compromise. They now, at this point, have second-generation Christ followers in their midst. They have a reputation in their community. And on top of it all off, they have the letter of Ephesians written to them by Paul in which Paul describes explicitly the love that Jesus has for them. He explains that that Jesus' love is wide and deep and big, and it surpasses all knowledge. And he says the love that Jesus has for us is like the love between a, a husband and a wife. It's that close. It's that intimate. I mean, they have these descriptions in their letter, and yet somehow they had abandoned their love. How, how could that happen to a church with so much access, so much privilege? I think that question is worth asking for a few reasons, but one is, does that church remind you of anything? Any church that you know of? A church with an incredible history, a rich history? A church filled with second and third generation Christ followers? A church with an incredible pastor who loves Jesus. A church with a dedication to truth and a dedication to understanding Scripture. A church with a reputation in its community. Does this church sound familiar? This is Parkview. This is Parkview. This is who we are. Without, without stretching too much, without seeing something that's not there, some of the things that were hallmarks of the church in Ephesus, you, we could say the same thing about Parkview. And so I think the question is a legitimate question. How could this have happened to Ephesus? Because it can happen in the first century in Ephesus. It can happen in the 21st century in Glen Ellen to a church on St. Charles Road. I think it can. So how does it happen? Why does it happen? I think it happens because, hang with me, I think it happens because Jesus Christ is a person. That's why I think this happens. It happens because God, in his wisdom and in his goodness and in his grace, has chosen to interact with us through the context of a relationship, a relationship with Jesus. It happens because following Jesus is not a sterile set of of rules, of do's and don'ts, boxes to check, transactions between us and God, a document to sign and say, this is what I believe. That's not what following Jesus is all about. Following Jesus happens in the context of a relationship. And so it's easy to see how potentially Potentially, a church with so much privilege and so much access and and such rich theology could potentially lose their love because it has nothing to do with all those things. It's about a a person whose individual relationship between Jesus and them. You see, if we're going to champion on one side, okay, we're going to champion the fact that God's a relational God. We say that a lot. We talk about God in these relational terms. He loves us. He wants us. He desires you know, to have a relationship with us. We're going to champion this. We're going to tell our friends it's not, it's not, about, re- it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And we're going to say those things. On the other hand, we have to also then embrace the reality that if this thing is a relationship, which I believe that it is, then it's going to function by some of the same rules that other relationships function by. It's going to have some of the same relational rules that other relationships have, at least on our end, at least on the human end of, of things. And by that, I mean that if this thing is a relationship, it's going it's to function with the same set of rules. That means that this relationship is going to take some time and energy and proximity and passion and intentionality and attention. 
This relationship, if this really is a relationship, it's going to play by some of the same relational rules of other relationships. That Our relationships are going to change and they're going to ebb and they're going to flow and there's going to be seasons where it's rich and there's going to be seasons where it's dry. And we know this to be true about relationships. And so we can't in one, one side say, we love that God's a relational God and yet forsake the fact that it's going to play by some of those same relational etiquettes. It's going to change. It's going to require time. It's going to ebb and flow. It's a real, live, breathing entity, this following Jesus is. That's how it happens. <laughs> but I think sometimes it doesn't happen overnight, obviously. And so I think sometimes it's hard to know, well, has this happened in my life? Do I love Jesus the way I used to, the way I should? Because, for instance, in, this, in the, the instance of uh, Ephesus, there was, there was no indication that they were in sin, I mean, Jesus doesn't write to them and say, you, you're wicked, you've, you've allowed sin to enter into your congregation, you are practicing things that no longer align with the things that I want you to do. There's no indication that they've morally fallen or that they've abandoned Jesus. They're a strong church. They still believe all the same things. In fact, they've gone through hardship together and they haven't abandoned Jesus. So how do we know it doesn't seem as obvious as just looking at something and identifying, well, I didn't do that, so that means that I'm there. It doesn't work like that. So this is what I did. I talked to a few people, and we brainstormed some indicators. What does it look like, potentially, that we've lost our love? These are just potential indicators. There's just a handful. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. This, this isn't meant to make you feel guilty. This is just a way on a Sunday morning to say, I wonder where my relationship with Jesus is this morning. And maybe some of these things apply to you. And if so, maybe that's an indicator that your relationship with Jesus needs some attention. One is potentially that your, your prayer life has suffered. It has become more of a shopping list than a conversation. One of the most relational things you can do with anyone is talk to them, right? Have a conversation. And so prayer is this opportunity to talk and to develop a relationship with Jesus. But lately, prayer has become a list of things that you want or need from Jesus. That potentially is a sign that you've lost some love. Or maybe serving. You used to serve and you used to give because you were so excited about using your gifts for some specific way. It was, it was not done out of obligation, but it was done out of an outpouring of love. You, just, you were so excited to give and see how God would use your resources or your time, your energy. But now it's a little bit of an obligation. You do it because it's an automatic withdrawal from your account. You do it to fulfill a commitment you made to a leader. That's an indication that maybe there's been some love lost. Your time with God, whatever that looks like for you, however you try and prioritize carving out a little bit of time for God in your day, that has become scarce. That has become harder and harder to prioritize and less and less important as your schedule gets filled with other things your time with God has become something that is dry. You've become apathetic towards sin. When you first came to know Jesus, you knew that there were some things in your life that weren't quite right. And you knew because you were taught well or because the Holy Spirit moved in you or whatever, you knew you didn't have to figure all that out before you came to Jesus. But you knew at some point you were going to have to come to grips with some things in your life that weren't quite right. And so you started this journey to, to figure out how to rid yourself of some of these sins. But over, over time, these things have crept back in. Whatever they are for you, I don't know. And it's become less and less urgent to get rid of these things. Become more and more apathetic. That potentially is a sign that we've lost some of our love. You find yourself talking about Jesus less. 
because there's not as much to talk about because your relationship maybe is a bit dry. You used to talk about it with the person on the train next to you. You used to talk about it with your kids. You used to talk about it with your friends or your spouse or your parents. But lately, it just it doesn't really come up because it's maybe not that big of a deal in your life anymore. You've lost something. Maybe you've decided to, or you've chosen, or you just, over the course of time, have withdrawn from community. Because you don't really necessarily want to be around people that are talking about Jesus and God and faith if you're not doing that. And so it's become uncomfortable to be known by others. It's become uncomfortable to be in an accountable relationship with others. And so you've withdrawn. A potential indicator that maybe there's some love lost between you and Jesus. These are just some signs. There are probably others. You don't have to have all of them to be true to you to say, maybe my relationship with Jesus needs a little bit of attention. So we know why it happens. Why does it happen? Well, because Jesus is a person, and this thing is a relationship, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to ebb and it's going to flow, because on our end, it's going to play by some of those same relational rules. But then what do we do about it? If it's going to happen because it's a relationship and there's going to be some give and some take and some ebb and some flow, what do we do when this happens to us? Here's Jesus' instruction to the church. He says in verse 5, Consider or remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. It's interesting, Jesus in addition to giving some instructions about how to regain some of your love, he also issues kind of a strict warning. He says, this is really important because if you don't do this, I'm going to come remove your lampstand. And some of you are like, there's that revelation language that we were promised about. And you don't freak out, okay? Lampstand, as we know in chapter 1, Jesus actually comes out explicitly and says, lampstand equals church. When you see lampstand, you know that's church. And so what is he saying? He's saying, listen, if you don't figure this out, if you, don't, if you don't regain the love that you had for me at first, then I'm going to take away your mark as a church. There's no point in you guys gathering and calling yourself a church if you're not going to be marked by love. You can gather. You can be an academic institution. You could be a community center. You could be a country club. You could be a lot of things that have people gathered together with common interests, but you're not going to be a church. I'm going to remove that from you. There's no, I'm not going to put my name of church on you if you're not going to be marked by love. Without love, a church is not a church. And so he underscores the importance of finding your way back to Jesus and to reinvigorating some passion towards him because it's a central part of who God's people were made to be. So how do we do it? Where he says, remember or consider how far you've fallen. Remember what it was like when you first met Jesus. You know, I met my wife Brittany in middle school, and, and we really got to know each other in high school. And the large portion of our friendship in high school was developed in a 1988 Chevy Celebrity. That was my vehicle. It was a hot ride. Uh, this thing was sweet. Actually, no, it was my grandpa's vehicle, uh, his second vehicle, and he told my dad, if you, could, if you can get it running, you can have it for your boys, thinking there was no way this thing was going to be able to run. And then my dad got it running, and my grandpa immediately regretted uh, his promise to my dad. But anyways, that was my car in high school, 88 Chevy Celeb, burgundy red, kind of a, kind of a crusty automobile. But here's what happened. 
early on in our friendship, Britt and I struck up this friendship before we, before we ever liked each other or anything like that. There was just this friendship. And what we would do is we would take rides in this 88 celeb because when you're in high school, all you want to do is drive. And so I would pick her up and we would roll the windows down and we would cruise up and down Woodward and Telegraph and Metro Detroit. And we just would have fun together. We would laugh and we would listen to music and we would take pictures on a disposable camera because that's what you used to do back in the 2000s. Okay, we just, man, we, that, so much of our relationship, our early days happened in the context of that 88 Chevy Celeb. Fast forward about eight years after that or so, Brittany and I had gotten married. We were living uh, out in Chicago suburbs. She was working at Wheaton Academy. I was working at another church in the area. And some of the initial newlywed honeymoon stuff had faded, and we were, found ourselves kind of in our first dry spot a little bit. You know, you know those seasons where it's just things aren't, things aren't clicking. You're missing each other. Your schedules are a bit crazy. You're becoming more irritable about things that don't matter. It's just, it's just one of those seasons. We just, we just weren't connecting. And one of our favorite artists, his name is Ben Rector, had just released a new album. And I remember I was driving home from uh, church on a Wednesday night, uh, home from youth group, and I was listening to this new Rector album, and this song came on. Okay, And the song hit me, and it immediately uh, impacted me because of the lyrics of this course. And so I remember I, I barged into our apartment and Brittany is sitting on our bed with her computer open and papers everywhere, such as the life of a teacher on a Wednesday night, right? And she's sitting there and she's working. And I say, B, have you heard the new Rector album? And she kind of looked at me like, no, I'm working. Like, I work. What do you do? You just listen to music all day? I said, no, no, you got to listen to this new song. It just came out. It, you, I, think, I think you'll enjoy it. And I pull out my phone and I hit play and we listen to this song. And the course comes on. You can see it up there. I was 16 with an open heart, windows down, and a beat-up car. This was us. Young, dumb, in love, and she was sitting there, and she was beautiful. This was, this was us. This was us when we were 16 and 17 years old. And we sat there on the bed two years into our marriage, a little bit in a rough spot, and we looked at each other, and we started to cry, and we hugged, and we said, this is how it all started. There was such sweetness in remembering the beginning stages of our relationship. It didn't fix everything. We still had to figure out our schedules. We still had to figure out how to live together and what marriage was supposed to look like and the give and the take and the selflessness that comes with the relationship. But there was such beauty, such innocence, and just sitting there and remembering how it started. Re-endearing ourselves to each other. Re-acquainting ourselves with each other. Jesus says, remember Remember what it was like when you first decided to follow Jesus. Because my guess, my guess is at some point when you made the decision, if you're a Christ follower in this room, when you made the decision to follow Jesus, when you sat in a church service or in your room, in your house, or wherever it was, when you sat there and you realized that Jesus Christ was a real person who loved you, that he was a good father and a loyal friend and a gentle advocate and a righteous judge and a warm and compassionate healer, when you realize those things about Jesus, my guess is that the weeks and months and the years that followed were marked by a joy and a love that was uncontainable and unmistakable. How could it not be when you come to the realization that Jesus Christ loves you? And so he says, remember that. Remember And then he says, do the things that you used to do. Do the things that you did at first that helped you stay close to me. 
Because at some point, when you first decided to follow Jesus, my guess is you did a handful of things, not because you had to, not because you thought that that's what you needed to do to become a Christian, but you did a handful of things because it drew you close to Jesus, and you just wanted more, and you wanted more, and you wanted more. And doing this thing, whatever it was, helped you get closer to him. You know, I kind of love that Jesus doesn't tell you exactly what to do. He doesn't say, do this and do that and do that, and that's how you reclaim your love. It's almost a subtle nod, realizing that every single person's relationship with him is different. And so the way that all of us interact with Jesus, the way that all of us reclaim our love with Jesus is going to look a little different. You know, for some of you, it might mean the way that you, you feel close to Jesus, the way that you interact with him is you love to just to, to be in nature, maybe. You love to go take a walk. You love to be in the woods and just look at the beauty of the trees and the changing leaves or the stream or the lake or something. And when you're there, you just feel you're so in awe of Jesus and you're so grateful for the beauty that's all around you and you feel close to Jesus. If that, then go do that. I mean, today, maybe not, but go do that. Go be in Nate. Go do whatever. For some of you, it's you love to journal, and the way, that you, when, the way that you think and the way that you're wired is when you're journaling and when you're processing and when you're writing, you feel close to Jesus because it's an outlet for you, a, a way that, that makes this relationship real. You know, for some, it's a retreat. It's a quarterly retreat or uh, a yearly retreat with maybe by yourself or maybe with a close friend or a family member where you get away and you, you, you leave all this stuff here and you get away and you recharge. I mean, for some, it's a conference or a podcast or... Whatever it is, it's different for every single person, and most likely you know what it is that draws you close to Jesus. For some, it's a, it could be a worship song or a worship experience like this or a concert. I mean, I would say uh, this past week as I was preparing for this, uh, I listened to the song Resurrecting by Elevation, and we sing it here sometimes. I probably listened to that song 30 times this past week because for whatever it is, in this season of my life, when I hear that song, it was my, it's my alarm when I wake up in the morning. When I hear that song, the way that that song describes Jesus, the way that song builds, for whatever reason, in my soul right now, that, that song pushes me close to Jesus and helps me realize who he is. Over the past week as I've prepared for this, I have spent a lot of time reading and studying. For me, that does it. For some of you, you're like, that is the worst thing you could ever do. But this past seven days, as I spent some time in libraries and coffee shops with my Bible open and commentaries and theologies on the table, as I'm reading first century primary sources, this is all very, very exciting to me. You guys all look completely bored by that. But man, as I do that, as an academic exercise, yes, but as I do that and as I learn more about Jesus, I, my soul starts to come alive. I start to remember who he is. I start to love the connection between scripture and between uh, the ancient world and these letters. I, I, I just love it. It makes me come alive alive. What, what is that for you? You know what it is. And so his call this morning is to go and to do that. Might The first few times it might feel awkward, it might feel forced. Again, plays by the same relational rules. Sometimes we have to give a little before we start to see a change. Just go and do whatever that thing is that connects you to the heart and the soul of Jesus Christ. As we call the band up, we're going to take a look at how this letter ends. And it ends in a really unique and significant way. Okay, it's, it's, this, it's fascinating. This is what it says in verse 7. It says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if you're listening to this, go and do it. You know, don't just hear it, but hear it and go do it. Okay, so that's interesting. But then what I find fascinating is that churches here is plural. He's saying, if you hear what I'm saying to the churches, then go and do it. The implication being that this congregation in Ephesus is going to read those other six letters to the other churches that Jesus is writing. So the congregation in Pergamum is going to read the letter to Ephesus, and the congregation in Smyrna is going to read the letter to Laodicea, and we're all going to kind of learn together. We're going to learn from each other's letters. But I don't think it's a stretch to also say that Jesus had you and I in mind when he wrote this letter. Knowing that just as the congregation in Smyrna is going to read the letter to Ephesus, the congregation in Glen Ellen is going to read the letter to the church in Ephesus. Truly, I believe that. I believe in the way that this is the language is structured and the spirit language that he truly is, has you and I in mind when he writes this letter. And he's saying, listen, if you have ears to hear, then hear this. Then do it. Please do it. If you need to remember this morning, remember. There's another instance in Scripture where Jesus calls us to remember. He's sitting in this room with his disciples and he's about to go die on a cross and leave this earth and he he doesn't want them to forget. He doesn't want them to forget. He doesn't want them to forget his ministry and his what he has taught them. He doesn't want them to forget him. And so he's sitting there at this Passover meal and he takes he takes this bread. Reiki would call it matzah, but I, I can't pull that off. So it's bread. But it was matzah. It was this unleavened bread. It was the ceremonial bread. But here we have regular bread. He takes this bread and he breaks it. And he says, listen, okay, I want you to remember. I don't want you to forget. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm I'm to make this bread significant in your life. I'm going to give you a, a multi-sensory way in which you can remember me. So he says, every time that you, you eat this meal and, and, you, and you take this bread, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember that my body was broken for you because I love you so much. So when you eat this meal and when you eat this bread, it's, don't, don't just eat it like it's a normal piece of bread. I want you to remember. I want you to, t- when you taste it, when you feel it, when you smell it, I want you to know, I want you to remember. Then he, he dips it in this wine, which some juice right here, and he says, listen, when you, when you drink from this cup, I want you to remember. I want you to remember. I'm giving you this multi-sensory way in which you can remember. Because I know that, that we get stuck in our routine. I know, I know that things get so crazy and sometimes we forget. And so he says, Here's, I'm going to give you a multi-sensory thing to help break you out of that routine so that you can remember. Here's the problem, though. That thing... <laughs> that thing that was meant to break us of our routine has become a little bit of a routine, right? I mean, some of you in this room, and this is not an exaggeration, have taken communion hundreds and hundreds of times. And this thing that was meant to break us of our routine has become a little bit of a routine. And so this morning, we're going to try our best to take communion, to eat this this juice-soaked bread in a way that is significant, We're going to try really hard this morning to use this for what it was meant to do, which is to help us remember. What's cool is we have a little bit of space here, a little bit of time at the end of the service where uh, it's going to be kind of a little bit of an extended worship set. And while we sing and there's music playing, 
there's four stations in the corners of the auditorium. We would love for you at your own pace to get up and go to the communion table to take some bread and some dip it in some juice and to take communion. Listen, because we have some time, you don't, you don't, don't feel the need that you have to do this immediately. Don't feel like when you see someone get up, you have to go and get in line. You can, you can wait and you, the communion's not going anywhere. You can wait and you can process and you can think. Also, if, if you're here today and you're like, I'm not feeling it today. I don't really know if I have anything yet to remember. I'm not sure where I am with Jesus. I need some more time. Please do not feel that you need to get up and take communion out of peer pressure. No one is going to point at you or think that that's weird. You're not going to get a, an email from Ray tomorrow being like, hey, I heard you didn't take communion. What, what's going on? Listen, if this, but if this is something that you want to do this morning as a first step to reclaiming your love of Jesus, then when we, when we start to sing at your own pace, get up and take some communion. If you can't get up but you want to take communion, you can raise your hand. We'll make sure we get you some elements there. Okay? And as the last thing, as you take this, you dip it in the juice. I would love, I would love for you just to kind of hold it for a second. If you want to hold it right there, you want to go back to your seat. I want you to look at this bread. And I want you to realize that this is Jesus. This is Jesus telling you that he loves you. Truly. That's why he instituted this. This is him saying, don't, please don't forget how much I love you. Please don't forget that I'm as real and as near to you as this piece of bread is to you. So let's take some time this morning as a congregation. Let's say you're sitting here today and you say, that sounds, that sounds good. It makes a lot of sense, but um, it's, been a, it's been a really long time since I've felt any sort of passion, any sort of energy, any sort of excitement for Jesus. I've been a Christian a long time. I've been doing a lot of Christian things. I've been at church. I've, I've been around this thing a while, but it's been, it's been a long time since I have felt what you described. And the temptation is to think that, that uh, we can never get it back. The temptation is to think that there's no, there's no way that I could possibly go back to how excited I was at first. That was 20 years ago. That was five years ago. That was last spring. I, could, I can't get back to that. That seems like forever ago. Here's what's cool. You ever, you ever wonder sometimes, like, so now what happened next? Like, what happened next to the Ephesians? Revelation, that's the end of the, the Bible, Andy. So, like, what, what happened to Ephesians? We got anything else? You know, what's fascinating is there's this guy uh, who was, lived about another generation later, so about two generations removed from the initial church. And his name's Ignatius, St. Ignatius. And he writes a letter to the Ephesians. Same group of people. This isn't in our Bible. This, isn't in, this is just a pastor that wrote another uh, church a letter and he, it's so fascinating. He calls them, he, he says they, they've acquired a nickname now in the ancient world. They are now, this congregation is the much beloved in God now. Something, they changed something. They turned it around. And now they acquired the name because of their faith and their love in Jesus. This group that had, had lost it, they had lost their love. This group, over the course of however many years, found their love again. They reclaimed it. They recaptured it. 
And so if you're here this morning and you think there's no way I could possibly love Jesus the way I used to love Jesus, I'm telling you this morning there's hope. Because Jesus loves you and that same thing that endeared you to him initially is still true. And so this week and hopefully over the coming season, we will do our best to recapture, to reclaim our love. As we dismiss this morning, I want you to know there are going to be some people up front, some, some a prayer team. That if, if this stirred something in you and you'd like to talk more about it, you'd like to pray about it. Or maybe this brought to the attention the fact that, you know, I've actually haven't made this decision yet. I've kind of been on the fence. I've been thinking about it. I really haven't been quite sure about it. Maybe today's the day that you want to make that decision. There will be people up front that would love to pray with you. Next week, we'd love for you to come back. We're going to start a new series called Present. It's preparing us for the holidays. Oh my, the holidays are here already. But the intention of this series is to get us in a place to do a series like this in October so that when December hits, we're ready. We've, we've, we've prepped ourselves. And so we'd love for you to come back next week and to engage in this new series. It's going to teach us how to be present where God has put us and to prepare us for the holiday season. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. God, we love you this morning and we're grateful for this ancient letter that rings true today that we can still learn from. And God, if there are, if there are people here uh, that think that there's no way they could possibly regain their love for you, I pray that you would speak to them right now. If you'd whisper to them and say, that's not true. Because you are still God and you still love them and you still desire a relationship with them. God, if there's someone here this morning and they don't know you in this way yet, they know of you, they've heard of you, they've been around this maybe a little bit, but they have yet to engage in an actual, real relationship with you, God, I pray that today would be the day they make that decision. We love you and we're grateful for the way that you've spoken to us. We pray this all in your name.